0: Good evening, everybody. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll just jump right in. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for this day and the time you've given us to come together and study your word. And Lord, I pray that this would be a time that is both fruitful for our minds, but also, God, that it would be productive for our souls. And God, I pray that we would go from this place loving you more and obeying you more and trusting you more. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So, um, in so doing, first, I'd like to say that uh, I am, I, I've received a lot of questions. And uh, tonight is actually our last night uh, to do this. Uh, we have all-church uh, celebration next week at South Campus. If you did not know that, I would love to invite you to come. We'll have a uh, short business meeting, and then we'll have our, our all-church worship service. Um, it'll just be a fun time of celebration uh, together. And then, uh, and then starting the week after that, and I'm looking for Ed, where's Ed at, starting the week after that is, okay, good, I just want to make sure I was right, starting the week after that will be all the classes, all the information, the handouts for the, those classes and everything are outside in the foyer. Um, and if you see a class that's interesting to you that is held at South Campus, don't think you can't go there. You can totally go over there and, and take part in that class. And some of them are six weeks long, some of them are eight weeks long, some of them are ten weeks long. Um, and you can see all the list of those uh, out there. Now without further ado, I will go ahead and let you know I received this question in multiple different ways, both by email and also people coming up and asking me this. And I added a little bit to it just because I felt like they kind of go hand in hand. Uh, But I was asked the question, or I was asked rather if I could explain the unpardonable sin. Um, and what the Scripture says about the unpardonable sin. And then also I figured we might as well talk about the sin unto death too because they kind of go hand in hand. Sometimes they even get a little confused. Um, And uh, if you want to know what confused looks like, half of you have that look on your face right now because you don't even know what I'm talking about. Um, So there is is something that's referred to in Scripture as the unpardonable sin. Maybe you've heard it referred to as the unforgivable sin. And the reason that I think it's so important to answer this is not just because someone asked me. But I think it's important to answer this, one, uh, because it does have some theological implications as to what we think and how we believe about God and about ourselves. But also, I think it has a very important pastoral application. uh, Because, frankly, uh, whenever you encounter these passages, whenever you encounter the passage that talks about the unpardonable sin, inevitably, especially if you are a new Christian, um, and when new Christians come across this passage, it causes a certain amount of fear or anxiety or worry because you, in, you instantly ask the question, well, have I committed the unpardonable sin or am I going to commit the unpardonable sin? And so I thought, you know, it is really important that we talk about this, uh, both, again, theologically, not just because inquisitive minds want to know, but also because hurting hearts and, and uh, frail Uh, feelings want to know because it can cause a certain amount of fear so with with that i want you to turn to the book of mark to the book of mark the gospel of mark and i'm going to go ahead and say a few things um the the unpardonable sin we have to look at certain passages to understand what it means um it's it's mentioned in matthew mark and luke uh, it's not mentioned in John, but it is mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In the two instances where it's really mentioned is, is in Matthew and in, or I'm sorry, in Mark and in Matthew. In Luke, it's referred to one time in uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 11, but it literally is more inferred than actually talked about. It is mentioned, but there's nothing else in there. So we really have to gather what we know about it from uh, the two gospels, Mark and Matthew. And, in, and specifically it's mentioned in Mark chapter t- uh, 3 verses 22 through 30. However, I can already hear you turning, before you go to Ma- Mark 3, in order to understand, you hopefully you'll know where I'm going with this, before you need to jump into Mark 3, to understand what he's saying in Mark 3, you need to go back to Mark chapter 1. So when we go back to Mark chapter 1, we find uh, that there's something happening. And, and just very quickly, by way of, of, of saying this, In Scripture, very rarely, and I say very rarely because maybe in the Psalms, maybe in Proverbs, uh, maybe something like that where uh, you read a psalm and we don't really know the background behind it. We don't know the context behind it. But then other times we get a psalm where it says, for instance, it'll say something like, oh, this is the psalm that David wrote when he was fleeing from Saul and hiding in a cave. Well, then we know what the background of the psalm is, right? But sometimes it just says a psalm. And that's it. We don't know the background. We don't even know who wrote it. And so because of that, we just have to take it on face value. But the vast majority of the time in Scripture, we have something that I've referred to repeatedly called context... ...that helps us understand what's going on. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke specifically, uh, while they are referred to uh, canonically as the Gospels... ...Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John... Um, And we talked about the fact that John, while it does have narrative or story in it, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are much more story-like, whereas John John just as much has a lot of theological statements and comments that he makes, right? I mean, the whole first chapter of John is really a statement about who Jesus is theologically and not really a story. But in Mark and Luke and Matthew, they're a little bit different. And one of the things that we learn... um, in these Gospels is as these stories go on, nothing, almost nothing occurs in a vacuum. When we're told something by an author, we're told for a reason. And usually there are clues as to what is, be, is going on in the background. There are clues about what's happening whenever this occurs. And that is the case in Mark chapter 3 verses 22 through 30. But in order to understand that, we got to go all the way back to Mark chapter 1 beginning in verse 21. So in Mark one twenty one through 28, it's Jesus and his disciples, they're traveling. It says, and they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Okay, so uh, this Jesus is doing um, all kinds of things, but he enters the synagogue, and he begins to teach. And it says in verse 22, and they were astonished at his teaching. Now, if you want to know the key... Or the beginning of the key to understanding uh, the unpardonable sin found in Mark 3. It's this next phrase. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Okay, The scribes were a certain sect of Pharisees. Okay, and so... They were experts in the law, they they were, sometimes you, we've talked about this before, but sometimes you'll see them referred to as lawyers in the New Testament. It just means they're an expert in the Old Testament law. And so, um, that's what they are. And he they say, it's, uh, Mark tells us, that the people were astonished at his teaching because he didn't teach like the scribes, but he taught as one with authority. What do they mean by that? It's simple, is when you read um, the Jewish literature of the day and the scribes were teaching... Everything they said would be, well, Rabbi Gamaliel said, da da da, 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 da. Um, You know, whoever said, da, da, da. And they're always having to, if you've ever written a paper in, in, in college or whatever else, you always have to give attribution. You've got to put that footnote down there. They write with nothing but footnotes. They teach with footnotes. Everything they say, nothing they say is original. It's always re-quoting someone else and using someone else as an authority. Except when Jesus comes in and he starts teaching, he teaches and he doesn't quote anybody. Why? Because when he refers to the Bible, he wrote it. So he's not quoting anybody. He's teaching with authority, not like the scribes. The scribes always seem to be claiming authority based on someone else. Jesus is just teaching like, this is just the truth, you should accept it. And that's astonishing to them because that's not what they're used to. They're used to people constantly quoting other people. So verse 23, it says, And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, Why with authority? Well, not only is he teaching, but he just spoke directly to a demon. He didn't say in the name of anyone. whatever He just said, be quiet and come out. And they came out. Right? It, it, they've not seen anything like this before. This man has extreme authority both in the teaching realm and in the spiritual realm. They say, a new teaching with authority. He commands even unclean spirits and they obey him. And this next phrase, Mark's letting us in on a key. At once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Okay, so we've got an issue now. Because where did all of this take place? In the synagogue. This happened in the synagogue. Okay, So the scribes come around and they don't like what Jesus is doing. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? Like what? With authority. That's what's happening. How does he speak like this? Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Side note. They're actually not wrong. They just don't know who Jesus is. Okay? They're right. No one can forgive sins but God alone, which means Jesus can forgive sins. But he says, it says in verse 8, and this is where you got to imagine they said that and then they know they're dealing with somebody totally different than anybody they've ever dealt with before. And immediately, Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question your, these things in your heart? They didn't say anything. Do you notice that in the passage? It says they were questioning in their hearts. They weren't saying this out loud. They were thinking it inside. And Jesus, knowing exactly what they were thinking, looked at him and said, Why do you question like that in your hearts? Remember this. This is strange. Why? What's the setting? They're inside a house, and there are so many people that no one can even get to him, so they have to cut a hole in the roof to lower a guy down, right? There are people everywhere. So where are the scribes? They might have been right next to him. Maybe they were spaced out a little bit. Maybe they were off in the corner, whatever it is. In the middle of this entire um, uh, hustle and bustle of everyone around, Jesus stops and said, why are you questioning that way? You know, inside your heart where nobody can hear. It just, all of a sudden, this moment gets very awkward for the scribes. And then, Jesus does something that they were not expecting. Because they didn't say anything yet, right? They're bothered, but they had not said anything out loud. Jesus starts this. Verse 9. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority. On earth to forgive sins. Now, why does he ask that question? He says, "Which one's easier for me to say, your sins are forgiven, or to rise up and walk?" Well, obviously, the answer is it's easier to say, "Well, your sins are forgiven." Why? Because nobody can see that. There's no evidence of that, right? He says, "Well, you know, because in uh, in parallel passage, right? Jesus asked them that. They respond." And say, well, it's easier to say, it's your sins are forgiven. It's much harder to say um, that you can rise up and walk. And Jesus says, you're right. And then he says what he says here. So that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin, sins. Rise up and walk. right? So he gives the, the physical evidence of what? Of the spiritual truth. Because what does Jesus say? He does not say, so that you might know that the Son of Man has authority to, to uh, make people who are lame walk again. He says, so that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Rise up and walk. So the physical healing was the proof of the spiritual healing. So he says that. And he said to the paralytic in verse 11, I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying what? We never saw anything like this. Mark is building an argument for what's going to happen here in a minute. So the scribes are there, and what happens? Jesus shows up and shows out and makes them look foolish. Why? They didn't say anything. He called them out for what they were thinking and then rebuked them and then healed just to prove that they were wrong. So Jesus Jesus calls them out in front of everyone because they're trying to find fault in him. Now, they were doing it inside this time. So it gets worse. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose, and he followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, notice that they did not say it to Jesus. Why? Well, they didn't say anything the last time and Jesus put them in their place. They're definitely not going to say anything this time. But they're a little bothered by the fact that he embarrassed them. So they go to his disciples. They go to his disciples and say, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, I love it. Even though they're talking to disciples, Jesus heard what they said, and he uh, Jesus heard it. He said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Right? What did Jesus just do? I love it, right? The first time he rebukes them, they're just thinking it. And he rebukes them anyway; makes them look foolish. The second time he does it, they decide, "Well, we're going to talk to his disciples over here, off to the side." Jesus overhears it, and either he's right there near them, or he's across the room. Either way, you know as well as I do, everybody heard him. Everybody heard this, and Jesus does what? He rebukes them and he makes them look foolish again. So, Mark twenty-two, or I'm sorry, Mark two, uh, verses twenty-three through twenty-eight. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him. So notice that. It's gone from they were thinking it to they said it to his disciples to now they are saying it directly to him. They get a little more brazen each time. They're saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you ever read or have you never read? Well, that's an insult. Of course they have. They're scribes and Pharisees. Of course they've read this story. Jesus is saying, I know you've read this. You're just being ignorant. That's why he says, have you never read? Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest. And ate the bread of the presence. Which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. That's an even stronger rebuke. He he calls... This is now the second time he's referred to himself as the Son of Man. These are Old Testament scholars. They're not stupid. They know what he's saying. He's referring to himself as the Messiah. Okay? The problem is, if you look at that passage, you notice something. In Mark chapter 2... Verses 23 through 28, it ends there and it says, And immediately he left the synagogue and he entered the house of Simon and Andrew. What? They had no response for him. No response. What are they going to say? No, that didn't happen? Well, they know it happened. They know the story about David going in and eating the bread of the presence when he was in desperate need. They know that story. They can't argue with him. So they're stuck. So what did he do? He just openly rebuked them and made them look foolish in front of everyone. You get the pattern here? Sometimes we think these are innocuous. They're not. Jesus does not like it when the Pharisees and the scribes try to catch him in a lie or trick him or anything like that and trip him up. And so he openly rebukes them. Mark 3, 1 through 5. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus. Who? The scribes and the Pharisees. They watched Jesus. To see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. Why? This is a setup. I don't know It's a setup. A uh, guy with a withered hand is in the synagogue. This is a setup. Okay, They're doing this because they know who Jesus is. And they know that when he sees someone who's sick or, or hurting or whatever else, they, the pattern that he's shown them thus far is he will heal people. So they, they set him up. Because it says right there, they did it so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. Now he hasn't healed him yet. He turns on the Pharisees and the scribes. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? See, remember, you got to think about where they're coming from. They can't answer that question. They can't answer it. If they say it's lawful to do good well, then Jesus did nothing wrong. so I can't do that. If they say it's lawful to do harm, well, then that's a violation of the law and, and, and wrong. So what did he do? He made them look foolish again by asking them one simple question. To save a life or to kill, but they were silent. Oh, it was Mark. He just described, but they were silent. They couldn't say a word. Why? He, he backed them into a corner. Logically, they can't answer this question. Verse 5. Say said, well, Jesus, meek, mild, and lowly. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Jesus asked them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm? To save a life or to kill it? Well, the truth is, is if they were, if they'd get over their pride and they're over their hardness of heart, they would say it's lawful to do good. It's, it's right to do good. But why is Jesus angry? Jesus is angry because they wouldn't answer. Not because he wanted them to answer, but because he knows they know the right answer, but they won't say it because of the hardness of their hearts. Because they can't let Jesus be right. They can't let him be right. So he heals the man. And in this instance, Jesus not only makes them look foolish logically, but he also makes them look like people who have no compassion and no conviction whatsoever. So you can tell this is all building, right? This is building to a kind of an okay corral, kind of showdown between Jesus and these guys. Mark chapter 3 verse 6. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. How to destroy They don't mean his reputation. They mean kill him. That's the best way to get rid of So where are they at now? They're not just a place where they're like, oh man, he's made us look kind of dumb. Maybe we could get back at him. They're thinking, we can't get past this guy. He is not going to give us an inch. We're just going to have to have him killed. And they're so desperate that the scribes and the Pharisees, they go out and speak to the Herodians. Don't miss that. The Herodians are the Pharisees' mortal enemies. They hate each other. Because the Pharisees saw themselves as theological and biblical conservatives and they saw the Herodians as these liberal good-for-nothings. And the Herodians saw themselves as right and kind, and they saw the Pharisees as a bunch of legalistic stick-in-the-muds. They couldn't stand each other. And yet, in this moment, the Pharisees are perfectly fine going and speaking to the Herodians. Why? Because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. They're okay with speaking to them because they want him dead. They want it done. And they figure if somebody could get it done, it's the Herodians, because, I mean, they're terrible. That's, That's basically what it's saying right here. So what's happening? This is all happening. They, they're at the point where they want Jesus dead. They are so angry in their embarrassment that they are willing to conspire with their hated rivals. Mark three twenty two. Now here's what's interesting. So I jumped, obviously I jumped ahead a little bit. Because um, he, he talks about with the great crowds and things like that. But in verse 20, it says, then he went home. And the crowd gathered. So he's, he's back in, in Galilee, in the Galilean area. He goes back home. Verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying. Now it's real bad. Now it's not that they just happened to run into Jesus in the marketplace. They followed him home. They traveled from Jerusalem to his home to cause problems. And what did they say? And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, like continually saying to the crowds, that's, that's what it means that they were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. So they follow Jesus home, not leaving him alone. They follow Jesus home and then when they get around the crowds, they start telling everybody that he's possessed by Satan, which Beelzebul is Satan. He's possessed by Satan, and he uses the power of demons to cast out demons, right? So that's where we're at at this point. They, uh, they tried to, they, they plotted with the Herodians as to how to destroy him. They can't figure out how to do that yet, or at least it doesn't seem so. But they've resorted now to following him around and just trying to discredit him completely. But not just a little. They, you notice when they try to discredit him, they can't discredit him mentally. They, they can't go, well, let's, let's throw out some other things that might trip him up. They've tried that a couple of times and it didn't work out well for them. So what are they doing now? The next best thing, they're spreading rumors. They're going to start spreading rumors about his character and, and about who he is spiritually. But this is far worse, actually. They followed him home, and they're trying to publicly discredit him and stir up the crowds against him. Mark 3, 23 through 27. And he called to them. Okay, so stop right there. Here's what's happened. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's doing all this. He goes home. They follow him home. Of course, the crowds are following him. We know that. It says that. Lots of people. So the crowds are following him, and they're there. And as they're following him... They're trying to, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, they come up from Jerusalem. They're trying to discredit him. They're telling everybody, man, he's possessed by Satan. And he is casting out demons by the power of demons. There's crowds everywhere. And it says, Jesus did what? He looked at them and he went, hey, you, come here. You got, yeah, you guys, come here. And he said to them, what? How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. What does Jesus do? He uses logic. He completely destroys their statement. Why on earth would Satan want to cast out Satan? Anybody else think that makes sense? That's, that's what Jesus is doing. A, a house divided against itself can't stand. So here's the point. Think about the logic of what Jesus is saying. If it's not the power of Satan and I'm casting out demons, then awesome. Because I'm overthrowing Satan. If it is Satan and he's casting out demons, awesome. Because then Satan's doing it in himself and he's about to destroy himself. They were just trying to discredit him among the crowds, and Jesus makes them look foolish. Again, he openly embarrasses them. Why do I say that? Because there's crowds everywhere, and he called to them in front of everybody. He made, them a, he made a spectacle, and he made them look foolish. Then, in Mark chapter 3, verses 28 through 30, is where the little trouble passage comes that we're talking about. See, that was a very long introduction. It is, but the body is actually very short because once you understand the context of what's happening, it makes more sense. This is him still speaking to, to the scribes, and Pharisees. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin for they were saying he has an unclean spirit okay so jesus just said that there's a sin that is an eternal sin that you cannot be forgiven for so when you think about that on, on face value, especially if somehow or another someone just points it out and you just jump into Mark three twenty-eight uh, through 30 and you don't read what's before it, it can get kind of scary when you find out that there's a sin that you might not be forgiven of. Because I can tell you this, the, the, kind of the root, like foundational thing for me is um, that I'm thankful every moment of every day that my sins are forgiven. And then to realize, well, maybe. You see why that would be a little disheartening? When the, when, well, maybe. It's one thing to think Jesus was out of his mind. okay. And why do I mention that? Well, because if you look at uh, Mark three twenty and 21, it says that he went back home. And the crowds were everywhere. And in verse 21 it says, and when his family heard it, that would be Mary and his brothers and his sisters. When they heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Right. Um, so they, they thought he was crazy. But all the things he was saying. And so they went out to get him. It's one thing to think that. You notice in this passage you'll find Jesus, that didn't bother him at all. He just walked right past it. But Jesus' warning to the scribes comes because they were attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan. Okay? Okay? The scribes and Pharisees were watching Jesus' ministry, seeing these amazing miracles, hearing the authoritative teaching, and seeing these amazing acts of God and saying, that's Satan doing that. To attribute the power of God in the Holy Spirit to Satan, and then to deceive others, because that's what they were doing. They were telling everybody this, right? So they were trying to deceive others deceiving others as they were doing, betrayed a complete hardness of heart. They, they, had, they, they were not sensitive to the things of God. They did not understand what was going on at all. All they knew was they hated Jesus, they wanted him dead, and they wanted him discredited. He is telling them that by doing this, they are showing such a hardness of heart that they're in danger of eternal destruction if they're not already there. The reason I say this is because he doesn't actually tell them that that's what's happening. It, it's phrased more like a warning. It, it, it truly is. I mean, although it, it could be the case that it's happened, it's phrased as a warning. The truly, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven in man, but, and whatever blasphemies that are, but whoever, right? He's still keeping it general. You notice at this point, Jesus hasn't had a problem making it personal. When he goes after them. Have you never read this? But in this one he says, whoever. He doesn't say, um, truly I say to you all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they have. But you, you're blaspheming against the Holy Spirit and it's never going to be forgiven. He doesn't do that. So it, it's more of a warning. And while it is in a few ways different, the parallel passage in Matthew is similar. This one takes far less time. Because in Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 32, I can tell you that the context leading up to that passage is exactly the same as we've already covered. Okay, it's it almost identical. A few things here and there, but nothing that changes the thrust of the passage. So in Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 20, uh, 32, it says, Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? So in, in Matthew we find out something that we didn't hear in Mark. And that is, the people were already putting two and two together. Wait, he's teaching with authority. He's healing. He's casting, he has authority over the demons. Is, is this the Messiah? That's what's happening. They don't like that. That's, this, is really, this is a bother to them significantly. But when the Pharisees heard it, so when they heard them saying this, so they followed him. You put these two together, what's happening? They followed him from Jerusalem. They're there as he's healing and he's doing all these things. The people start saying, maybe this is the Messiah. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 24, But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man... Cast out demons. Then knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. What did Jesus just say? He said, but, the people are asking if I'm the son of David. I've already called myself the son of man repeatedly. He says, if that's true, uh, that I'm casting out demons by Beelzebub, then you're crazy because he just proved that it wasn't. That's what he's telling them. It can't be that. But if it's by the Spirit of God, which is the only other alternative, if it's by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He's saying, guys... This thing that you have been looking for for thousands of years? The the, the one that the prophets have told you about for thousands of years? If I am healing by the power of the Holy Spirit and I am casting out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit, then the kingdom of God has come upon you and I'm God. I'm the Messiah. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Why is that important? Well, they were against him. And they were actively scattering people. Because of their claim that he was doing things to the power of Satan. They were trying to scatter. What does he say he's doing? He's gathering. They're scattering. Therefore... I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So that little phrase there, when you look at Matthew and Mark together, we kind of get a real thrust of what's actually happening here. Okay, Because in Mark, you remember, he said... In verses uh, chapter 3, verse 29, 30. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Well, see, Jesus was a man. He's the son of God, 100%. He's also 100% man, and he's what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. But they said he was filled with an unclean spirit. They just called the Holy Spirit, an unclean spirit. That's a problem. That's a big problem. Why? Well, in verse, uh, chapter 12 of Matthew, verse 31, it says, But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. What are they doing? They're not just saying something and being a little incorrect. They're attacking the Holy Spirit. They're attacking the work of God. And what Jesus is saying is they are evidencing something. Jesus is rebuking them because the very thing the prophets had prepared them for was happening in front of them and they were completely denying it and not only denying it, and they weren't even ignoring it. They were actively saying that the move and act of God was actually Satan in the world. They're saying he's doing this by the power of demons. He's doing this by the power of Satan. So, in these two passages, what is Jesus' point? Well, Jesus' point is this you can blaspheme, you can insult, and you can deny the Son of Man. He even says that, right? You can deny, you can speak all kinds of blasphemy against the Son of Man, and it will be forgiven. It can be forgiven you. However, if you make yourself an enemy of the Holy Spirit, declaring him to be Satan, hardening your heart against him, Calling good evil and evil good, as Paul says. With evil intentions, here's where the problem is. Simply put, if you blaspheme against Jesus Christ, you can still be convicted of your sin and drawn to repentance and faith. But if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, which means to harden your heart to the point... That you say that the things of God are evil and they're wrong. That's what they're saying. When you do that, you have a problem. Because John sixteen eighteen tells us that it is the Spirit's role to convict the world of sin. And when you so harden your heart against the things of God, that you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, the scribes and the Pharisees who have done this, and they are in danger of removing themselves from the ability to be convicted of sin. They have so hardened themselves against the things of God that even uh, that they have removed the Holy Spirit uh, from from acting because everything that the Spirit does they say is what? With Satan, so they deny it. Which removes the ability to be convicted of sin and If you cannot be convicted of sin, then you cannot be drawn to repentance. And if you can't be drawn to repentance, you can't trust Christ in faith. And if you can't trust Christ in faith, you can never be saved. You will spend eternity in hell. Therefore, Jesus says, when you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, you commit an eternal sin. That cannot be forgiven. Why? Because you can't be drawn unto repentance. If you're a follower of Christ, now, now hear me, after I've sufficiently made some of you nervous... If you're a follower of Christ, you do not need to fear this. You don't need to fear this at all. First of all, you don't need to fear a specific moment of sin because that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a settled hardness of heart that would see Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit with a kind of hardness of heart that would make it incapable for you to repent because you can't be convicted of your sin. Again, it's not that forgiveness isn't granted. It's that it is never sought. That's why it can't be forgiven. You're so hard of heart, your sin can't be forgiven because you never want forgiveness. You don't think you need forgiveness. You believe that you're beyond it. The heart has become so dull and bent and at such odds with God's spirit that it becomes incapable of true repentance. Therefore, I would argue that it is not possible for a believer to commit the unpardonable sin simply because you're a believer. That sounds really simplistic. But you're a believer. Put it another way, the fact that you are bothered by it proves that you are nowhere near being in danger of committing the unpardonable sin. Why? Because it's the evidence of a heart that is tender to the things of God, tender to the truth of the person and work of Jesus Christ, and tender to the work of the Holy Spirit. So, what is the unpardonable sin? The unpardonable sin is a sin committed by an unbeliever in which they deny the things of God, attribute them to Satan, don't care about sin, have removed themselves beyond the desire to want to find forgiveness of sins or even feel that they need the forgiveness of sin to the point that they remove themselves to the place where they are beyond the ability to be convicted of sin and drawn to repentance. And that is the unpardonable sin because without conviction, there's no repentance. Without repentance and faith, there is no trust in Jesus Christ. And without Jesus Christ, there is no heaven. There is only hell. Okay, so that's the unpardonable sin. And that took a little bit longer than I intended Second one, sin unto death. And, and these actually go hand in hand in a sense because they get a little confused. Um, I even read some commentators that I very much respect that said they were the same thing, but they're not at all. Um, so I don't know really what they were reading, but the sin unto death. A second, we can discuss the sin unto death. This is in First John chapter 5. First John chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. 1 John 5, 16 and 17. Right at the end of the book. 1 First, First John uses the word no. K-N-O-W uses the word no 39 times. It's, it's actually very important for this to understand this passage. In the last section of 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 21, which is where we'll be looking, of those 39 times in the book, seven of them are found in that small section. He repeats himself over and over again saying, we know, you know, and so on. John is ending his letter by wanting us to have confidence in the things we can know for certain as Christians. That's the whole point. 1 John um, if you, you say you have this and uh, you say you, um, you love God but you don't have love for your brother Then the love of God is not in you. Those kind of things. So he's saying he's, he's calling those things saying Do you want to know what genuine faith looks like. He's calling that out constantly. And then at the end he wants to mer- make sure we know some things though. If you're a believer in Christ you can know this. We know this. We know this. We know this. In fact in uh, verse 13 is the first one of those seven we knows in that last section. Best one Maybe. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That's the first thing you can have confidence in is that if you believe in the Son of God, you have eternal life. That's a good one. And not many amens, so I'm guessing maybe I'm the only one who thinks that's a good one. It's not a Sunday morning, so I won't ask for it. The second thing we can know in this passage as he's given us this list of things we can know the second thing we can know which is really verses 14 through 17 we can know that God answers our prayers look at verse 14 and this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will he hears us and if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask we know that we have the request that we have asked of him We can have confidence that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We know that if he hears us, if it is according to his will. Okay, I got time. So we'll just aside here for a second. When he says we know, we have confidence, that if we ask anything according to his will. According to his will is not like a little Uh, what we call in in public speaking, a vocal pause. It's not like Paul had to fill some space, or I mean, I'm John, sorry, that that he had to fill some space, and so he just thought, well, I'll just throw that in there. When he says according to his will, that's actually a very important phrase, um, theologically. Uh, It completely discounts any kind of name it and claim it prosperity type stuff, okay? The reason I say it discounts that is this. Just because I say in Jesus' name, That I want a 2022 Chevy Z71 4x4 quad cab. right? Just because I say that in Jesus' name, does that mean I'm going to get it? Because there are theologies that teach that it does, as long as I have faith. But what this says is, according to His will. Yes, one, simplistically, that means according to what God wants for you. But it also means, according to His will, similar in the New Testament, where Jesus says, if you ask anything in my name... Right? That means the same thing. It means, in my name, or according to his will, means according to who he is, who he has revealed himself to be, according to his character and his purposes on earth and in history. That's what it means. So you don't speak things into existence. Okay? This says, when you pray and you ask things, according to his will, what does he promise? He promises... And this is the confidence that we have toward Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Okay, so if we ask according to God's will, He hears us. That's an amazing promise. Okay, because there have been millions upon millions, billions of people who have lived throughout the history of this world who have prayed to false gods, and they think. That they they have prayed, they have poured themselves out, they have cut themselves, they have done all manner of sacrifice and different things like that to be heard. And guess what? Nobody's listening. But the promise that John makes us is that when we pray according to his will, he hears us. That's an amazing truth. So he says, he hears us. But then what does he say? And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, according to his will. It doesn't say it that, but it's it's implied there. We know that we have the request that we have asked of him. That's a fun one. He does not say, we know, we have confidence toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that if he hears us, he will give us. That's actually not what it says, is it? It says... If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have. Not that we will have, that we have. Again, amazing promise. That means if you go to God and you pray according to his will and for his purposes as a believer, you come before him and you do that, he hears you. And for God to hear, this is what John is saying, For God to hear is for God to answer. He answers. He says we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So what's the thing that's incumbent upon us? Two things. One, you got to ask. Two, you need to make sure that when you ask, it's according to God's will. It's for his purposes, for his glory, according to his character and his good purpose in life. Then verse 16. This is where it gets weird. Seems to get weird. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. That, That seems like it just came out of left field. Except... This is what happens. We get confused on these verses when we think that this verse, well, really 16 and uh, 17, we get confused when we think that those two verses are the point. Those two verses are not the point. Those two verses are an illustration of his point. He's, He's explaining something based off what he just said. What did he say? You ask anything, believer, according to his will, he will hear you. And you know that if he hears you, you have what you have asked for. And that's the point. So then it's as if he says in verse 16, Let me just explain to you how far that request actually goes. How far does it go? If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask. Well, ask who? Well, in the context of this passage, ask God. Okay? So he'll ask. And God will give. Why? Because it's according to his will. That's, it's implied by what he just said. You ask, he will give. Why? Because you asked according to his will, he will give. Why? Because it was according to his will. What did this brother do? He sinned, but it was not a sin unto death. And what will God do? God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. It's a very interesting phrase. So he says, you can pray for a person who has fallen into sin, a brother who's fallen into sin, and if it's not a sin, by God's determination, that leads to death, then God will hear that prayer and God will answer that prayer and God will give life to the individual if it's a sin not leading to death. That's what he says. He's talking about a Christian, a true brother in Christ who commits a sin for which... God will take his life. Look at what it says. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is a sin that does not lead to death. So he just told us that there are two types of sin. There's a sin that leads to death and there's a sin that doesn't lead to death. He says, if it's a sin that doesn't lead to death, pray for it. What he's saying is, And and if if there's a sin that does lead to death, don't pray for it. Why? Because if it's a sin that does not lead to death, then it is God's will that they be restored. So if you ask for that, He will answer your request. But there is a sin that leads to death, whatever that is. And that sin that leads to death, God has already determined what was going to happen because of that. They've committed that sin, therefore it's leading to death. He's saying, at this point, that's God's will. Don't bother asking. So, why is he saying this? This seems so strange. Well, the point of the passage is you can ask for anything according to his will and he will give it. And then John wants to say, even if someone commits a sin, as long as it's not a sin leading to death, you can do it. What does that mean? Anything, his point is, there's only one extremely rare circumstance in which you should not pray for that because God has already determined that that was going to happen. Said, so, Well, how on earth are we supposed to know that? It's a really good question. I have no idea. So he's talking about a Christian, a true brother, who commits a sin for which God takes his life. That's what this is. Say, could that happen? Yes, it could happen. Did it ever happen? Yes, in fact, it did happen. In 1 Corinthians 5, you remember something. You remember there was a man who committed adultery with his stepmother. Which is incest. It's vile. And yet, what does God tell them to do? Call him out for his sin. If he repents of his sin... Welcome him back in the church. But if he doesn't, cast him out completely. Right? So what would that be? Well, obviously, that would be a sin that was not unto death. Because we know based off 2 Corinthians, the people did what Paul said. They cast him out. The problem in 2 Corinthians is that once he was out, he repented of his sin. And they wouldn't let him back in. So in 2 Corinthians, Paul's saying, you took it too far. Let him back in now. Right? So this was not a sin leading to death. However, in 1 Corinthians eleven, Paul talks about something else. He's talking about the Lord's Supper, and he says that there are those who come before the Lord's table, but when they do so, they come with shallowness, with hypocrisy, with superficiality—not an honest, heartfelt. He says that they 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 blaspheme the Lord's table. They don't they don't take it seriously. And then he says, because of this, now he's writing to the Corinthians about something that's happening in the Corinthian church. They're aware of what's happening. And Paul says, you've got people who have come to the Lord's table and they have abused the Lord's table, the Lord's supper. They're abusing it. They're not taking it rightly. They're not taking it seriously. And he says, and because of this, some of you have gotten sick. And some of you have even died. The implication there is not that it was a really bad potluck. Okay. I mean, I've gotten food poisoning from a potluck, just so you know. I'm pretty sure every Southern Baptist preacher has at some point. But that's not what he's talking about here. They're, they're having uh, what they called the love feast or, a, or a, a fellowship. They didn't really celebrate the Lord's Supper quite the way we do it. Uh, they had a full feast. Where, of which bread and, and the fruit of the vine were a part of it. And so he says they came and they were just didn't care. They, it, was, it wasn't a moment of worship. It wasn't an act of worship. And because of that, he said, some of you have gotten sick and others have even died. You think at that moment when they're reading that, they're realizing there were some people that were dying. And they weren't really sure why it was happening. And Paul just told them why they died. So he says, they abused the Lord's table. And because of this, some of you have died. It's okay, well, that's just First Corinthians. Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit. Were Ananias and Sapphira believers? Yes, they were. There's no indication of anything other than the fact that they were believers. They were worshiping the Lord when, frankly, it was kind of dangerous to do so. They They were believers. But I would say they had a strong lapse in judgment. Right? And they both lied to the Holy Spirit. And what did God do? Peter declared... Because you have lied to the Holy Spirit. Boom. Ananias dies. They take him out and they bury him. Before they even get back from burying him. Sapphira comes in a little bit later. What happens? She lies too. Boom. Dead. So God did that. So it could be the desecration of the Lord's table. It could be. A lie in front of the whole church for which the Lord takes a life. You say, Well, what sin is it? What, how can you give me a list? Please, I'm begging you. Hear this it's not any one sin, it's not stated as a single sin, it's a sin at that time and in that place. That compromises the testimony of the church, compromises the name of Christ to the degree that He actually looks at that person as if to say, "You know what? You're done." You say, "Well, uh, that's not punishment for the believer, right?" What Paul say, "For me to live as Christ and to die"? It's game. So it's actually interesting. It's not punishment for the believer. uh, believer. It's grace and protection for the church and mercy for the believer. That's what it is. It's mercy. Why? Is it better that they stay on this earth and bring disparaging things upon the name of Christ and themselves bring suffering and difficulty upon themselves in this life or the Lord just says, you come to heaven. It's actually a grace for them. So John finishes by by telling us what? All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. He finishes by telling us to pray for those who are in sin. That's, That's what he's saying. Therefore, the sin unto death is open sin in the believer's life to the point that it is destructive to the ministry of Christ's bride, the church, and it is damaging to the witness of Christ in an irreparable way. This would be an instance where the Lord looks at the situation as if to say... Quote, to protect my name and my church, you are doing or have done such damage through your sin that it is better for you and for the church if you just come home now. That's what the the sin unto death is. So, to recap very quickly. The unpardonable sin is a complete hardness of heart that removes you from the ability to be convicted of sin and drawn to repentance, and this is something that can only be done by an unbeliever. The sin unto death is a sin or pattern of sin that brings such disgrace to the church and does such destruction to the witness of Christ and the ministry of the kingdom that the Lord shows his grace on the person and the church that he removes them from the equation and brings them home. And this is something that can only be done by a believer. So, those two things hopefully bring comfort and a warning. Comfort in that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you cannot, you cannot actually commit the unpardonable sin because you have already ultimately submitted your life to, the, Spirit, uh, to the, the Son of God and you have submitted your life to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. So you can't commit the, the unpardonable sin. But if you're a believer, you can commit the sin unto death. And that's why, like the, the sermon I preached this last week, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, this one thing. Live your life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's our calling to live, to honor him, to not bring disgrace upon the name of Christ or upon his bride because as we could tell, whether it's from 1 Corinthians 11 or from Acts 5 or other places, God takes his name and his bride very seriously. And we should too. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for this day. And Lord, I thank you for everyone here. And Lord, I pray... Um, that we would find encouragement. Um, yes, and warning, but we would find encouragement and we would find grace and mercy in the midst of these questions. And no, Lord, so thankful that you tell us these things. That we're not left in the dark to figure it out on our own. And God, you show us these things. You make us aware. Lord, may we recognize that our call is to share the message of Christ with anyone and everyone that we possibly can until we breathe our last breath. And we are to never bring disgrace or shame upon the name of the one who saved us. God, may you be glorified in our lives, in our our words, our thoughts, our actions, and each and every step we take. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.